Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the soapily beautiful hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all humanity. <laughs> the following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network, including, of course, Outlaw Radio, Air FM, Backyard Party Network, Here Women Talk, and There Women Walk. Felix with your teeth. Uh, Howard Lapidus crashing <laughs> around like a bull in a china cabinet. That's me. Mark C.G. Boyer's here. I am the legendary Burl Bear. The legendary Burl Bear. And on the phone, I have the horniest kid in America. That's not true. Can that yeah, be true? Oh, yeah, I, I think so. Michael, Candyman. <laughs> Candyman, <laughs> sweetheart, baby, Snookums. You are the horniest nine-year-old boy in the history of America. In the Guinness Book of World Records, I'm sure you are in there. Uh, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me, the oh. legendary Bill Barrett. Thank well, you. Well, it's a pleasure. Believe me, I've been reading your book, <laughs> Chili Pimpin' Atlantic City, and I absolutely love the book. Not just because I've known a lot of sleazebags in my life. Is that right? <laughs> but uh, it's, it's uh, yes. and you had our, our pal uh, Ron Chipsick uh, work with you on that, didn't you? Yes, he did. Um he was a lifesaver. I had, I had tried for for four years to get it out there, and I saw him on television. I saw his name, and I, I mailed him the manuscript, and he edited it, he edited it for me, and he talked me through it, and he brought it to fruition. If you, if it wasn't for him. Uh, it would be unreadable, believe me. Well, he was on our show a couple weeks ago, and he was a great guest, and we're pleased to have you on as well. Uh, Thank you. Let's go back to the beginning of the book, because it starts off with you being, what, nine years old? It reminds me of uh, our late great friend, uh, Henry Hill, who said he always wanted to be a gangster. <laughs> yes. And yes. you always wanted to get into the pants of those hotties. Oh, yeah. They, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a glorious time, I guess, the way he said in the movie. Um I had a, uh, I was from a, a blue-collar working family myself. My, my mother was a correction officer who eventually became a warden. And my father was uh, a drunk who uh, worked menial jobs and couldn't put any food on the table. So, I, you know, being in the street, I was trying to help out. I was selling newspapers. I would steal them from the daily news plant. And by stealing them and selling them in the street, I had right across the street from the daily news plant where the truckers came was what was known as a track where young girls right. worked for a pimp. And I would watch them, and I actually um, found a way to ingratiate myself with them and befriend them Wait, as you give a child. them some free, free newspapers? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I, um, I saved up my money, and while walking to and from, I would pass a brothel where the same girls worked, and I, I wanted to be like the pimp I saw working them. I didn't know what it took. Or what it, I knew it took money to dress like him, but to possess his magic over them, I thought I had to sleep with the woman. I was also I had an incredibly huge libido. Yeah, nine years old, it. you had a pretty, for a nine-year-old, you were like, you know. April, and, and you didn't? <laughs> I don't remember nine. This, or, guy's or is not, it, is this guy's at nine, he's like poking half in New Jersey. It's coming well, up. I, well, I, was, I think I was curious. I wasn't sure exactly what I was supposed to do, but I wanted to try it, whatever it was. So I saved up my money and I actually approached them and, and asked them how much it would cost. And they told me, and I worked for... Like 50 bucks, right? She wanted 50 bucks. Yes. Candy, and I, yeah. 
I had to work myself to the bone to get it. <laughs> Literally. You know? So, right. did you know? Did you? But hang on, Michael. Did you know what you were getting into, so to speak, for the fifty bucks? Did you know what you were going to be doing? What you and take us through that? Did she lead you, or what happened? No, there? actually, when I when I saved it up, I wanted two of them. I knocked on the door. Oh, sure, of course. I Hell, the, my, best, my best clothes I had, and I knocked on the door and. There was going to be a gentleman about it, and, and their names were Chocolate and Candy, and they wouldn't accept the money. And uh, I was actually. Do you have the address, of... by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I think they might be a little snappy. They might have moved by now. Okay. Right. <laughs> they're old woman now. They're in their yeah. old folks' home. So are we. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, be right, we'll be on top of it. Exactly. Broadcast from an old folks' home. <laughs> so so I, I remember this that they didn't want to do you because you were a kid. Yes, they thought it would bring uh, unwanted police uh, attention, and they were right. I, uh, I, it took me a few, a couple, uh, uh, a few more years to actually get what I wanted. By then, but, you were uh, eleven. Yes, I was eleven, and it was a woman. To, uh, crack had been invented by this point. Well, freebase cocaine, not exactly yeah, crack. Yeah, I remember. And um, I saw an opportunity to um, ingratiate myself with old women, with actually adult women who were working women at the time. And it was a beautiful time for a young kid that wanted to get into grown women's pants in, bed, in, in Brooklyn, New York, because the crack was everywhere and it was an explosion. So I, uh, I, I met a woman named Miss Jones, who... Um, that I was her real my... name, by the way. Yeah. 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 She had a friend, the devil, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, me and Mrs. Jones got a thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Exactly. I didn't have the imagination, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as the Saint series of books. I didn't, you know, change the names of fictional people with real people. Well, Farrell does that Yeah. He's read up on me. I change, yeah. no, I change no names. I just go on the radio and tell everybody what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Which my, my wife's lawyer appreciates, by the way. <laughs> I save her an awful lot of work. You uh, you now eleven years old, and you uh, show up with a with a couple of rocks and. Uh... Right. Uh, what happened was in in retrieving her drugs to get sex to lose my virginity, I, it turned into retrieving or procuring customers for her to get money to buy uh, crack cocaine, mm -hmm. which is basically the. Um, the formula for chili pimping. Mm -hmm. I was trying to explain how I actually got into chili pimping. Chili can, pimping is a, de it's a definition, actually. Can you define it for us? Uh, a chili pimp is a, a small-time pimp, an amateur, usually a one-prostitute pimp. It's usually his girlfriend. All pimps start off as chili pimps, and most of them end off as chili pimps. <laughs> yeah, I've seen but that was, being a chili pimp was kind of your goal at the time when you were 11? <laughs> no, I was actually just trying to find my way. It was just a, a, a I was like a, a kind of a, a victim, not really a victim, just a, uh, just part of the times. It, it was, was just what one was more, happening. one more mark on the street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was more or less trying to reflect on the times, I guess, the same way someone from Chicago in the Roaring Twenties would try to explain prohibition. And uh, I, I read up on later on on Al Capone's, um, he revolutionized prostitution with the mattress, um, with the, uh, the same way Henry Ford did the, the assembly line. Al Capone had assembly line prostitution where women weren't allowed to leave the beds, and he charged a cheaper rate because they wouldn't wash in between Johns. I thought that was I just at my house. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I was just trying to explain the time. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I thought somebody would might, someone would might enjoy reading what it was like I loved at that it. time. I loved, absolutely Thank love you. this book. We're going to sell your book. Don't worry about that, Michael. Keep, keep no, I'm not. I'm not trying to do that. I'm, I wouldn't even say the name of the book. I'm just well, happy. We, to no, say the name of the book because it's wonderful. It's, it's entitled Chili Pimpin' in Atlantic City. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> so at uh, 11 years old, you figure out how you're going to get into the ladies' uh, pants. Uh, right. It may be crowded in there, but you're going to get in there anyway. Right. Crowded? You need a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Find I my keys know. and we'll drive out. She started crying because I was very small for my age. I, I looked really like a child, and she started crying because when a woman is, is uh, first starts to binge, when she first starts to use drugs, they find themselves stepping outside of themselves and doing things they'd never thought they'd be doing. Mm -hmm. So she felt shame, and she started crying because I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, I came inside, I, I held her, I inserted my, my unit inside of her, and I thought we were doing it. Mm -hmm. but she and says I tried to kiss her, and she tensed up her lips, and she began to cry. And uh, later on, when I found Mr. Harris from my block, as uh, I, I procured him, and uh, I actually uh, haggled the price with him for her. I watched him do it, and I figured that's why she was crying. I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, it must have been really she was sad. You crying know? out of how pathetic this kid is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so, once you figured out there had to be some uh, uh, thrusting involved or whatever, then you kind of got into the groove. Shall we? I, I think we kind of spent a lot of time on this. I like this part. I, I, I know you do, and, and so does Michael. And, and quite yeah, frankly, it, it, the, the truth is, so do I, Michael. But. <laughs> But heck, you you had this this life going on through your teens, and woke up one day and said you wanted to be a cop. Yes. How'd that all work out? Well, uh, <laughs> my uncle was his name. His name is Wilfred English. He's a retired um, sergeant from the transit police. Uh, during the blackout of 1977 in New York City, we had a blackout. Yep. Um, and he used our house in Bedford Stuyvesant, in Brooklyn, to uh, hoard tons of things he looted, including an entire bike store. And I was very impressed. He was in uniform, and I saw him and his partners in their police uniforms doing their thing, and I never forgot it. Even when I was selling newspapers, he lived out in Long Island, which was uh, a world away from where I was, and I would stay in the summer times, and I would see him, and I would see him talk to his friends, and uh, he, you know, he had certain connections in what would, what's, what would be known as the loop. And so did my mother in the corrections department. So when I came of age, I met a, I was uh, living with a woman who we were involved in chili pimping as well. Uh, she gave me the idea. I had taken a test. My mother put me in for all civil service tests, corrections, fire department, police department, when I was a kid. And so I took the test, and part of taking those tests is you have to forget about them for a couple of years because it takes years to be called, and you have to be old enough. So... When I was with her, she said, you know, if you were a cop, we could make a lot of money, and you could use pimping. I, I could meet people. You could, you know, you could protect me, and we could find out other other ventures to make money. It couldn't just be, pro it wouldn't have to be just prostitution. So, And, and you said yes? He, oh, absolutely. When so, he called me, all so, I thought about was all the money I could make, and uh, a few things started. And being, my mother being at that time a deputy warden, and my uncle being a sergeant, it gave... See, uh, even in the police department, not all police officers are corrupt, very a small few, and uh, even a tinier percentage are as corrupt as I became. But you to became, be that you, way... Hang on, Michael. You walked in as a dirty cop. That was your intent. Yes, yes. 
So but not exact, not exactly, because after six months of the police academy, I was completely brainwashed, and I came out looking to do the right thing. But then certain events, a turn of events happened, which woke me up and brought me into the real world, and I took to it like a fish to water. Well, yeah, let's let's, uh, let's hit on that event. Oh well, I um, when I came out of the police academy, you're assigned to what's called FTU, a field training unit, and my sergeant, his name was Sergeant Roundtree who was a, a black gentleman, which I took to. I had never seen a black sergeant before. I had to go through the whole police academy and everything. And I said, okay, I'm going to impress this guy. We went out and he wanted to see who would make their first collar, which means an arrest. So I saw this guy make a deal. And, you know, of course, my mind went into Hollywood mode. And, you know, as a child, I watched black exploitation movies. And, I, you know, it turned into Shaft. You know, I took the guy down and I arrested him. And I brought him in and I brought him before the desk. And I stacked up these three crack vials. And I poked my chest out. And I, I didn't even notice that all of the co officers, the cops came in to see, you know, to congratulate the first rookie to break his cherry from the recent class. Is, is it is it just coincidence that there's somebody named Roundtree in this mix? <laughs> I know, right? Isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought about that. <laughs> it's just Roundtree. Yeah. It is a, it is a, it's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, he actually wore his hair and the coat. You know, he was old school. He had At that time, he had 25 years on, so he was actually from the Shaft era. Mm -hmm. This is the early 90s. So when I looked at him, I thought of Shaft, and his name was Roundtree. I'd never brought that up, but I sure as I should have. I like to ask the questions that haven't been answered. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you're there all. Your chest is all puffed out because you busted this guy with three uh, three crack vials. And he said, "What the hell is this?" I said, "Sir, I'm I've made an arrest, and I'm here to vouch for three vials of cr what appears to be crack cocaine." And and uh, and he said, "You woke me up for this." <laughs> And he, you know, he was wiping the cold out of his eye, and he looked behind me to the offices, and he said, "You let him walk in here with this?" And he said, "Sir, he was very proud of himself. He wanted to, you know, pressure." He said, "Let him go. Take the cuffs off this guy." And he said, "Let him go down the back ramp. You know, that's to Baxter Street. To um, uh, I'm sorry, Albion Street, Albemarle Street." So I let him out. And I said, so what do I do with, should I voucher the crack cook? He said, I don't care if you smoke it. Just get it off my desk. <laughs> yeah. And don't come in here with that. Don't wake me up unless it's serious, I swear to God. Or you're going to get a green sheet. That's a command discipline. So when I walked the guy down the back of the stairs, he said, can I have my crack back? And I couldn't believe it. You know, as a cop, that was outrageous to hear that as a rookie cop. Yeah, hey, you got to ask, right? Right. <laughs> I said... I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm going to destroy this. You know, this is destroying the community. And, you know, I went into my whole spiel, my whole police academy spiel. And he said, that's really messed up, man. You know, I said, I really need, he said, I really need that money. I didn't give it to him. And I let it sit in my locker for a little while. And, you know, a rookie salary, we started off at 25977 We were making basically 350 every a week, basically, after taxes. We took home under $700. This was in the early 90s. So what I did was I said, you know what, I'm going to fucking sell him. Mm. You know, I looked for that guy on the street, and I sold him back his crack. <laughs> Good so, thinking. So, so you, but you went, you, you said you wanted to do the right thing. You well, he, held, had an, he had an awakening. And, and the awakening was, well, why? This guy doesn't want to get woken up. This guy, you know, I'm letting him go. So you figured you're going to just go into the business. I mean, that's, right. I mean, you, I realized you, you in did, Brooklyn, New Michael, you crossed, the, you crossed the thin blue line pretty early. <laughs> yeah, we had plenty of people pulling him over. Right. But you had it right coming out of, the, I mean, you had it right coming out of, uh, out of the but academy. you got to deal with what's real, right, Michael? 
Well, then, why, is it, then why isn't every cop dirty? Every cop isn't dirty because some of these guys, it's not about the money. They would do the job for free. You have to understand that. Some people, they're sixth generation police officers. I knew Irish cops whose lineage went back to the dead rabbits. They, you know, it's in their blood. It's not even about the money. They really feel, there's some people who feel like it's, they have to do the right thing. You yourself was a founder of this, the mayor of Seattle's task force on preventing yes. teens from alcohol right. and drug abuse. And yeah. you, you have unity basketball tournaments, and you, you, you promote things that uh, promote racial that equality. Would, that would be Burl Bear, not me. <laughs> That's me, yeah. Don't, let's, That's not get, how, let's not get yeah. carried away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we sound alike. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want our tribe mixing. <laughs> Absolutely not, no. <laughs> but there's some people who would never cross that line. I was predisposed to crossing that line and I had heard my mother talk. I heard my uncle talk. I grew up even though we we were not we were perpetually poor. We weren't like in the slum, in the ghetto. We were people my parents bought a brownstone during the recession and they couldn't keep the lights on, which means we owned a home but we could barely keep the heat on. There were times when we collected trash to put in a fire, you know, fireplace, meaning we were blue-collar people, lower-middle-class blue-collar so, uh, people. Am I supposed to feel sorry for you that, that, that you lived this life and then that's why you went bad? So Not so. at all. I'm, trying to, I'm actually trying to put it the other way. I'm okay. trying to say that I Please. came from people who weren't necessarily bad. They just came from a blue-collar world. You do that, what you do to survive in the circumstances, and sometimes the line is flexible. There's usually a moral core somewhere of a line you don't cross. Am I correct? There are, there are a lot that, of lines I would not cross. That's right. Oh, okay. So uh, you're, you're a criminal, okay, but there, you don't want to be a full criminal. That's what you're saying to me? No, I'm a criminal. I would guess I'm like, what's his name? Sugar Man Treckle? Is that what he's called? Treckle, yeah. yeah. That's right. I, I'm nefarious, but I have my own code of rules and laws that I live by so I could look at myself in the mirror. I don't screw over children. I have never sold drugs to a child. I've never stood by while any child was ever abused. And I don't harm elderly people. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn. Those are just codes, codes I live yeah. by. And I don't give up names of people who let me commit my crimes along the way. You don't live that. But hang on a second, just so our audience knows, you don't live that way now. I mean, you're on the back. You're back on the right side, right? Are you? Are you, are you still? <laughs> are you still committing crimes? Yes. You are. Yes. Oh, okay, so the address I have on you. <laughs> no, I'm watching out for this guy. I'll give an alias. I didn't see nothing. we got to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with Candyman, sweetheart. We'll be right back. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Hi, I am the legendary Pearl Bear. Raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked in the cradle to rhythm and blues. I take time out of my busy schedule of ruling the universe of contemporary broadcasting to write true crime books. And you know what? They're pretty damn good. 
In fact, I gave one as a gift to Sirius Vic about a month ago, and it's still sitting here. That just goes to show that fascists are illiterate. But... <laughs> St. Pierre was an alcoholic driven by nurse to kill all the time, especially if he were to show up here. And his brother had problems, too. And their best pal, Andrew Webb, took drugs, talked to skulls, and they wound up committing a few homicides. And you know what? There's pictures in the book, Vic. <laughs> There's pictures in the book. It's illustrated. It's not a, like a graphic novel. It's a uh, true crime book called Headshot by Burl Bear, Edgar Award winning author, available wherever books are sold, online, or in person. While you're at it, pick up Masters of True Crime, edited by Arberry Flowers. Uh, about uh, 17 true crime authors all together in one book, and I'm one of them. Back to True Crime Uncensored. Yes. With Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And? Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. And occasionally. And sometimes Marie Mackey, Esquire. Yeah, she was here last week. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. Who's the lanky blonde, Matt? Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. Okay. <laughs> I am the legendary Burl Bear. That's Mark C.G. Boyer eating some Langer's uh, pastrami or corned beef this time. Pastrami. Uh, good pastrami. It's as good as it gets. Good as it gets. We got uh, Candyman. Michael, how you doing? Uh, yes, sir. I just got a text, and I just, for the record, I'd like to see. I, I'd like to say I can neither confirm nor deny that I'm actively involved in crime or racketeering or criminal enterprise. Of course, I can't, I can't of imagine course. where that came from. Probably <laughs> your attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I, if anyone asks me, as far as I know, you are an upstanding citizen. <laughs> yes, sir. I have never seen you violate any laws or do anything illegal in my life. What are you, what are you doing? I, I took this guy and <laughs> got him to admit he's a criminal. Oh, he was just teasing you. Oh, is that it? It's satire. You can say anything in satire. That's right, that's right. Okay, so let's go back. So you become a cop, and then you realize your original goal is, I can make a lot of money because I got a badge. And it's like, did you ever see the movie The Bad Lieutenant, Harvey yeah. Keitel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And I had a, a New York police detective tell me once, he said, on the NYPD, we don't call the movie The Bad Lieutenant. We just call it The Lieutenant. That's right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But there are there are a lot of good ones. I've met some that are, and a lot of them just have to look the other way because that's part of the code, and they don't want to get caught up anything. They don't want to look like a good lieutenant. A good is some a good lieutenant is someone who looks out for everybody. So they just look the other way and they stay quiet. But not the vast majority of law enforcement, especially in New York City, just does their job. And they keep their noses clean. So you got thirty-two thousand cops in New York, or thereabouts. Am I wrong? Right? Pretty close yeah. to that number. What what percentage of that thirty thousand are dirty? I would say about about thirty percent are grass eaters, meaning they're mildly corrupt. And I would say about ten to fifteen percent, maybe twelve percent, are meat eaters who are extremely corrupt and are in the loop. That's every a huge every number. every district or every precinct or every Tri precinct, which every precinct, every radio frequency covers three precincts. There's a loop. There's like a, a a gang within the police department. They do favors for each other, and they're into making money, and they're into protecting certain people, and so on and so forth. How are they with the clean guys? How does that work in the in the in the uh, in the station? Well, people who are really clean, there's an uneasy tension 
And a lot of times, the really clean cops won't really talk to you. They'll just say hello. And uh, depending on how you interact with each other, say you save a guy's life and he knows you're dirty, he'll even tell you, I'm not going to look out for you if I ever get a chance to bring you down, but thank you. And, you know, and, and you, sometimes you'll find him gritting his teeth and looking the other way because a lot of times the, co the dirty cops are the ones with the muscle, the ones who, when you call an 85 forthwith or a 1013, we're the ones who could really throw down and get rid of somebody, meaning we can... Uh, we can beat somebody to a pulp, and when a medical examiner comes, we'll shoot him up with cocaine, and the rule is ruling the, the death will be ruled cocaine psychosis. Meanwhile, we stomped his ears together. The dirty cops, we're the grime, we're the garbage men. So they actually need us. It's a, it's a, it's a uneasy coexistence. The one out of every three guys is a grass eater. Yeah, and the grass eaters, the grass eaters are the grease. They're the buffers. They're the in-between. The grass eaters are the ones that never get promoted, they be, but they become union guys. Union guys and liaisons between you and the administration, you and the brass. The clean guys become the pencil pushers, you know, the desk jockeys, the cocksuckers, the white-collar guys that never leave the precinct. And they wind up in an office somewhere and they get promoted. They don't even know what it's like on the street. They have no idea what being a real cop is all about. They become the bosses. The same way Bill Gates has no idea about the real world, but, you know, our geeks run the world. <laughs> That's, That's right. how it works in the police department, too. We're just a microcosm of society. I want to get on a story here where you see uh, some cops descend on a car and pop an unarmed man full of 24 bullets. Oh, yes. I was uh, I was assigned to CPOP. This was in 1995, I believe. I was a CPOP officer. That's a B-cop, which I sought out because when you're on the street, you could be a loner and you could be a, an omnivorous shark. You could just be out there like a predator just looking for drug deals. I used to watch them all day and rob them at the end of the day and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, and keep the money. And while I was out Man, I there... I used to see that in Seattle all the time. There was a guy that used to just come down the street and shake down every speed dealer and take their stuff and put it in his pocket. He's collecting taxes. That's yeah, all the yeah. tax. <laughs> anyway, so you're on this, on this job. I'm on the job, and I was meeting with some girls. You know, I was always trying to... I was, I was a serious skirt chaser. It's a weakness I always had, a terrible sickness. And uh, I was so no, I'll tell you up. about some of your other weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was someplace where I wasn't supposed to be, and I saw three officers. These officers were um, they were they were Irish and Italian, which was my gateway in to the loop. Um, you, you never get that way through the black cops. You got to go through the Irish or Italian. My 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 preference were the Irish. The Irish are the best, and when it comes to corruption, but. They, um, what, what makes them the best? The, what makes them the best is that I, the Irish, you know, not, pardon the, the, uh, the pun, but they're all about the green. And they don't mind sharing the pie. And they share secrets with you. The Italians just want to make you their servant. They'll always give you a that-a-boy. But they'll, they'll make it clear see, how much they actually hate you for being black. The Irish are much better at disguising that and shaking your hand and calling you a nigger behind your back. <laughs> they, 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 they use grease when they screw you. <laughs> That's awfully that's brutal. Who, what's the most accepting? Wait, wait, wait. wait what, I don't want to lose the story here. Well, I, I saw two friends of mine who I had, had just invited me out two weeks earlier. They were working what's called a task force. Uh, approach a car, and without any warning, without even, you know, announcing that they were cops, it was a white car. It was on East 34th and Church Avenue. 
they riddle this SOB with bullets. Riddle them. I mean, chew this guy up. Right? So everybody laid low. I just stayed quiet. And before you know it, the crowd is gathering, you know, and it was a West Indian neighborhood in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, and they're screaming all kind of things and, and, uh, and broken English dialect, and they're looking for the gun. All the cops are looking for the gun. Nobody could find a gun. So they have the car towed back to the precinct. And... Um, the officers were digging. I, I, I named they're them. desperate to find a gun, so they they're have an excuse to find to a gun. why they and, shot him. Yeah. Right, and guess who shows up with a gun? You do. I do. I say, here's a gun. <laughs> right? And, <laughs> I, 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 All of a sudden, you're a made man. <laughs> exactly. While they're not looking, I said, this is my way. There's no other way for a nigger to get ingratiated with these kind of people but to do something like this. Even in the police department, I'm still a nigger. I could make street money, but I can't make any real money. So... I, they they stand outside of the garage at the six seven precinct, which is still there, and they like keep look out in every direction. All of the brass like go away, and I slide this gun in the car. Next thing you know, the gun is found. He was a heinous criminal, you know, ex-con. They dig up his criminal record back to when he was five. You know, wild nigger gunned down in Brooklyn. Cop saved the day in a brazen shootout. The armed killer claimed he was going to kill cops and was taken out. You know, they got medals, you know, they, um, Kevin and James got medals, and, uh, and, they, and when I came to work, you know, he said to me, is your mother, you know, so-and-so? And I said, yeah, and the Irish and Italian, they, 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 they ingratiated me, and they showed, they showed me, they shared the secrets that have been passed on for generations, the pad, the graft, the bribe, the art of extortion, the shakedown, they took me to school. And you know, and I love him for it. And but the only thing was, what made me, what made Deputy Commissioner Schwartz call me one of the dirtiest, is that I took a different approach to it. While I was there in the six seven precinct, I ingratiated certain people. You know, we be it was at Crown Heights, East Flatbush, Flatbush area. I met a few uh, people in the Hasidic community, mm. Rabbi Gluckman, Rabbi uh, Schwartz of Lubavitch headquarters on East yeah. Parkway, and I paid attention to how the Hasidic community did things. When an Irish and Italian kill a cow, they only make a leather jacket. Mm -hmm. When a Hasidic person kills a cow, you know, they make shoes, they use the gelatinous material to make jello, they, they use that whole freaking cow. So what I did was I applied a Hasidic approach to establish corruption as years went by. Mm -hmm. And I became an all-around, you know, jack of... Uh, of trades with it. I got to the point where, you know, I was looking out while bones were being stolen from our funeral parlors to sell to this guy, this doctor in Englewood, New Jersey, for regeneration of bones. They called this guy the bone collector. This doctor got a whole bunch of time, Dr. Marino, but he wanted teeth, he wanted bones. I, you know, I even robbed the fucking grave. Pardon my language. <laughs> yes, all right. Now? <laughs> it's okay. We're on the internet. <laughs> now? <laughs> no, we, we, we pardoned you after cocksuckers. <laughs> I'm sorry. Pardon. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, things were going really well for you. Were you, yeah. were you making money? Um. Well, oh, yeah. The, um, it was a glorious time. The same way Henry Hill said in Goodfellas, it was it was a time, it was a uh, Giuliani, we had Giuliani in there, and the only thing he said about police corruption publicly at the time was don't get caught. Uh, at that time, uh, Rudolph Giuliani had a certain, uh, a known dislike for minorities, which whenever there's a dislike for minorities, you know, whenever, whenever we have a Republican mayor, 
uh, killing people, like the way the cops killed Sean Bell, is okay, which makes it very good for corruption. The who, cops who, who, corrupt, who, did, who specifically, what, what groups didn't Giuliani like? Giuliani, he did not like um, Bohemians. Mm-hmm. He did not like um, uh, homosexuals. He did not like blacks of any kind, whether you're West Indian, African American. And uh, he, he pretty much was very conservative, very to the right. You know, he was he's a Republican. He was a red, you know, a red, a right wing guy. And he allowed cops to openly show their hatred. We even had, there's a picture of, I worked with a guy named Jason Volpe. His brother's name is Justin Volpe. He stuck a plunger in the guy's rectum. Oh, yeah, all I, remember the way that, I remember that case. Right, right, right. He allowed us, he allowed cops to just express their hatred. But in that confusion that was caused, I found a blanket of comfort. I could, I could use the Italians and the Irish. I could use their hatred to make money. Whenever a drug dealer refused to pay, whenever I went to the highest bidder, I was the middleman. I was the guy who could speak the nigger language on the street in the Spanish language. If you didn't want to pay, it, it was going to be heavy on you. You might get found somewhere. Boy. Sounds like you were you were in a schmaltz pot, as the Hasidic would say. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good time. It was a wonderful time. A now, black person will never be able to make that kind of money again. Now, your, your parents were Bohemian, right? But yes, they were. Yeah. Yes, they were. I, so I, they were I, Bohemian, black, and homosexual. How'd they work? No, <laughs> well, no, not homosexual. Okay, but just, they just were okay. <laughs> they were okay with everyone. We grew up two blocks from, from Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. It was a college, which is an art school which people come to from around the country. And to make money, they would rent out the upper, the upper floors, and we would all squeeze on the one floor. But they were art students, and my parents had this big table with a huge ashtray, and part of my chores would be to fish out roaches for them to smoke. But they, they were into art, and they were into tie-dye shirts and, and lava lamps. What, and they what, were very, what's our year here? What, what, by, by what year are we? We're talking, well, my parents, well, I was born in 1970. Okay. So in the late 70s, early 80s, they were still listening to, uh, um, they're big fans of Elton John and the Beatles and um, the song called Midnight at the Oasis. Oh, and, yeah. uh, Maria. Maria Maldauer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Put, put your camel to bed. That's right, <laughs> right, uh, right. Um, Joni Mitchell, it was a very loose, very relaxed environment. And money, money wasn't important. It was all about love and everyone getting along. It was uh, very carpenterish. You know, the, the woman who killed herself? <laughs> yeah, she died, yeah. I right, it was that. a very, it, you know, it was black, it was white, and everyone loved each other, and there was a lot of smiling. And, you know, there were people who would run around making these big balloons with paint on their faces. It was... <laughs> Real, yeah. you know, free love type of thing going on. Yeah, well, you were having a lot of love going on that wasn't free, and you were getting a rake off on it. But you, you got ten, <laughs> you, you wound up being a correctional officer before you were a full fledged cop. You kind of got schooled then in the pimp uh, business, didn't you? Yes, I did. When, um, when I came in, because my mother was actually my boss, no one gave me a hard time, including my bosses. She was two ranks above me. And I was assigned, there were only three female prisons, and two were actually annexes of Rose M. Singer Center on Rikers Island. My mother's actually prison, my, her actual prison, where she at the time was a second in command. So I was assigned in all three, 
that when I was assigned to the Ward's Island Correctional Facility, I met a woman named Janice Quick who helped me run my house. I couldn't control these women. And I found out that she was actually running a stable. A stable is a group of women who are being sold for cigarettes, for favors, for actual money, for drugs. And um, I didn't want to embarrass my mother, but I actually was bringing in drugs for them and so on and so forth. But and I, I protected her while she ran her thing. And, I, she, and we played Scrabble and we shot dice and we played spades. Spades is a card game played by African Americans in, in America. Did you ever play Ten Thousands, a dice game? No, oh, not we played CeeLo and we played craps. So the game not... Spades. Uh, did, uh, when was it attributed from the from the game to the race? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I'm sure there must be some correction. I mean, some connection. But, yeah, Richard Roundtree uh, had that. I wasn't actually called this. I wasn't called a spade. Uh, I didn't even know what that was until I went to school. My mother, trying to give me a good education, sent me to PS204 in Bensonhurst, where I actually had to get walked. There was a bus strike in 1977, and people were protesting they didn't want niggers going to their school on 81st Street and 15th Avenue. So my teacher, Miss Giuliani, got a guy that you might know. He was an actor on a TV show called Fish. His name was John Cassisi. He played the son, who was Victor Fish. Fish was the guy who was right. killed in the movie The Godfather. Abe Vigoda. Abe Vigoda. Who's still alive. Right, right, right. A lot of people think show. he died because he got killed in that movie. You know? right. It was just business. It was nothing personal. Tell Michael. Right, right. Him. I, he, was on, he was on his show, and he used to walk me to 79th Street and 18th Avenue to get on the, 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 the train because to keep me safe. One of my schoolmates was a guy named Joseph Farmer who he got famed for killing a kid named Yusef Hawkins. That was all over the place. In, in New York, it was a big racial incident. Uh, he killed a black guy who came looking for a car in a white neighborhood. But I had to get walked to the train station. And um, that was the first time I was called a spade. I didn't really know what the hell they were saying. But, you know, I was called every name in the book. Of course, that's how it went. And I didn't take it personally. But I knew I wanted. These people lived well. They had, their streets were clean. And, you know, I was caught in between. I saw a lot. I saw a, a very uptight Italian community. I came home to my bohemian neighborhood. And uh, What do you mean you didn't take it personally? Um, no, seriously. How do you? How does that work? Well, nigger was the word that that that, uh, that was we were supposed to take personally, or so I was taught. Except for no one used the word nigger more than we did. Right. We we we, we, <laughs> we, kind of, we, we all put that away. <laughs> no, we, we did. <laughs> yeah, we put uh, you know I put that and Schwarza in the same bag. No, I use Schwarza all the time. I know. <laughs> Can't stop you. I always said my dad said that was politically correct because Schwarza means black, and so they wanted to be called black. Fine, okay, here's Schwarza. That's all. <laughs> yeah, that worked for me, bro. How's your dad doing? He's passed away. I know. We love him. Anyway, so uh, you do get you got school that you weren't really running uh, the uh, the house there at the Correctional Institute. But she was. Miss Quickness was running the house. I was actually like her her underboss, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. She was running the house, and we talked about prostitution a lot. And she told me a lot of the rules and regs and how things should go and shouldn't go but being young and being just a kid that still just a kid i was in my early early i was 20 years old i just wanted to have fun and make enough money to continue having fun i didn't how, know, much, I how, really, how much money do you think you were making a year back then back then in the jail i wasn't making much at all oh, just to, to a touch further down the line did you start to make some real money 
when I became a cop, even even as a rookie cop, I would say I wasn't making any more than like 150000 a year as a rookie cop or 200000 a year. Not until I went to Manhattan off narcotics. When I got to narcotics... That must have been a gold mine for you. Oh, yeah. I, so I really pursued that. I, going, to, going to Harlem, going to Sugar Hill Harlem is a corrupt cop's dream. That's the promised land. All dirty cops will do all kind of favors. They'll kill people. They'll cover up murders. They'll do whatever favors they have to do to get to Harlem. That's the promised land. That's, that's the BJ's. That's the Costco's. That's the <laughs> Sam's Club of drugs on the East Coast. Harlem. The same way on the West Coast where you guys are, people have to go to Humboldt County for marijuana, and they have to go down to San Diego to deal with the Mexican Mafia for black tar heroin and so forth to bring back up to Seattle and hate Ashbury and San Francisco. Okay, back up. Yeah, we want, if we want the marijuana here, we go down to the corner. All oh, right, right. I mean, we, there's a store now, here. Right. You walk right. in like a the human being, and you're treated like a, a customer, and you pay like a customer. Yeah, but if you want crack, it's not that way. Well, I yeah. hope that never happens here, or else there'll be a lot of us, uh, us spades out of work. Out of work. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the story here, is, is the dealers and the uh, cartels and stuff don't want stuff legalized because it, it, the studies show that if you legalize this stuff, it just knocks the legs right out from under them. You have to leave us. You have to leave the blacks some way of making money. You can't do. You're going to start. You're gonna, if you legalize drugs, you're going to have a crime wave on your hands. It's going to go back to the Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, 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 what's it? John Dillinger era. You have to leave and people and, 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 a means of making it. So you're sure of that? You're so we got to keep things dirty. We got to keep drugs on the street, prostitution happening. Because they don't then, let them make real money saying, otherwise. What you're saying is then the blacks will behave themselves. Is that uh, that's more racist? <laughs> that, that, that's the most racist thing I've ever heard. It may be racist, and a lot of you guys get in trouble for saying it, but it's the fucking truth. Yeah, I'll get in trouble. If I said it, I'm in big trouble. I, but I, I, I won't say it, nor do I believe it. But Now, you, you once just... again, once again, I'm sorry. Not all of us, all right? Some of us can get elected. I, get, I hear this argument all the time. I get where you're going with it. Barack Obama's president, yada, yada, yada. I understand. A black can get elected, but it doesn't mean he can get hired. And some blacks will get hired. Some of us will slip through the cracks. Okay, and I'm very happy about that. We've come a long way since the Jim Crow era. It's since the 1964 Voters' Rights Act. We've come a long way. We've only been free 147 years, and we've covered a lot of ground. I understand that. But if you legalize those things, we are so locked out. Of everything, I'm not. I'm not crying. I'm not whining. I know where you're going. The same way Jewish people always accuse of whining and leaning on the Holocaust. I'm that's, not that's going right. here. I'm not whining. I'm just saying, for a certain percentage of us, it is our livelihood. We need it. We I, have to have it. I've if you don't it. have it, you're going to. absolutely correct. Well, yeah, yeah, I know he's correct. I just uh, I don't subscribe to it. I, <laughs> but it's the truth. I, uh, but I, know, I don't subscribe I know, to the hey, truth. Look, look, I know. Uh, look, I no, no, no. I know it's the truth. I don't have to. I'm not saying it's right. No, it's not. It's, I mean, in a perfect saying, world, well, we, that wouldn't be that way. You know, it's so, not right. It's, of course, it's not right. If the world was right, I wouldn't be on this radio station. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. You, would you, we? You just, you just We'd barely, have enough sense to have honest jobs. You just barely squeaked in, my good man. Here, finish, finish this for me. Here I come to save the day. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh, that's that's. I'm a I'm a big. Oh, oh wait, here I here I come oh, to save the day. You know, that, it you? means that mighty, mighty mouse, mouse is on his way. way. 
right? Am, am, I, am I right? Yeah, of course you're right. My cousin Marshall Bear wrote that. Uh, that's right. One of my I used to I used to watch that cartoon over and over and over. I used to love that song. And the, my favorite part is the ooh at the beginning. You know. <laughs> didn't you want to? Didn't you want to save the day, Michael? Uh, yes, did, I did. Didn't you yes, want to be I like did. Mighty Mouse? Yeah, I wanted to be. Let me tell you something. We just I, I'm just like every other. You know, we we may be of different backgrounds and different religious beliefs. I happen to be agnostic. I have to be agnostic. If I wasn't agnostic, I'd lose my mind. Being agno being agnostic makes me able to approach the world from a Machiavellian uh, standpoint. Well, there's no shortage of that around here. Although I'm a, I'm a <laughs> traditional Jew, so that well, you're a uh, a by by her. I'm a Baha'i. No, no. Burl's a whatever he is. He's I'm, a, I'm a Baha'i of Jewish heritage. I, I, I live across the street from the Baha'i Church, but I only park in their parking lot. That's as close as I get. But I, I subscribe to it. That's that's the idea. I told you that. this nice summer breeze. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, continue, because I'm trying to figure you out. Because I, I understand this guy perfectly. Well, he's a, he's, he, he did admit something to us earlier, but we'll let that go because I want to keep him alive. But... Uh, and I do want to keep you alive. You're fascinating. And, and you may know that we have had several of our guests receive death threats prior to coming on the show. Yeah, we don't, the people that are told not to do the show. But you, you know what? You've done such a great job with us, and we're going to have you back, I hope. But, but um, damn, you know, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around everything that you've done. And then you come out on, uh, if, you know, the, the happy ending is there is no happy ending yet. And I don't even know what that could be for you. What, what do you see as your happy ending here? My happy ending would be to get my children to college and somehow slip through those cracks and me be uh, the, the catalyst for a clean, healthy life that's crime-free, that's drug-free, and to, and to live in a world that's, that I guess that the Bohemians actually hoped for, that Sesame Street-style type of existence where people like myself don't exist and don't have to exist. Well, but here's your, your want to educate your kids with dirty money, yes, no? Well, I have no choice. You know, I can't educate them with no money. You know, I pay $2,000 a month for them to go to private school right now. Right. If, if they go to a poor school where the rest, I won't use the word you don't like, where the rest of us coleds go, they're going to wind up being... Well, he wasn't yeah. going to say Schwarzer, but he You're, thought better of it. He's running through the gamut today. <laughs> right. Well, if, if they go to the school where the rest of the coleds go, if they're not sexually molested by some teacher, if they're not, if they, if they're not forced into a gang, if they're not killed by a stray bullet leaving the school... You, you know, my dreams are up in smoke. My, it, you know, everyone, no one knows how things are going to turn out, but I'm hoping for the best. And as long as I do my best to keep, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't gamble. You know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't indulge in, in vices. I'm not a vice person. I'm a family man. I didn't say I was a good person. I'm a good father and a good man. I'm evil as hell. I don't doubt, I don't doubt that. But I'm evil the same way uh, a Simon Templar is. You <laughs> yeah, understand I, what I'm saying? I understand exactly what you're saying. <laughs> I understand it, but I'm trying to, you know. You know, you got I, your, you've got your code. You're not a big fan of law and order, but you are a fan look, of justice. Look, I'm trying to wrap my arms around you, and it's like trying to wrap my arms around 50 pounds of jello. Okay, Mark Boyer has a question here. Did you, uh, did you want any time for any of your uh, offenses? Well, 
When I when I was uh, I was arrested by in April uh, September twenty second nineteen ninety seven I came into work and I was arrested by the, the FBI and Internal Affairs and I was jogged to a van in my uniform and my mugshot was taken in my uniform and I was actually charged with unknowingly driving with a suspended license and it let me if I, and it let me know that my brother in law at the time was arrested for. Um, uh, criminal enterprise and narcotics trafficking and I was told that I had to um, cooperate against him or I'd be holding con held in contempt of court I don't actually have a criminal record the most they ever did to me was hold me detain me in contempt of court for not for refusing to testify against him and, uh, and you're not alone. You know, John Holmes spent a year in the Twin Towers here in L.A. because he refused to testify in the uh, uh, Wonderland murders. The, the guy, not Nash was his name, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, uh, that's because he said, if you testify, we're killing your wife, we're killing your girlfriend, we're killing your mom. <laughs> you know. Well, with, with me, it's different. A lot of guys, uh, you have snitches and you have rats. Oh, people. You have people who rat for different reasons, right? My reason for not ratting, you know, I have, if somebody, like, I, I was shot, for instance. If someone shot me, I'm giving you up. That the code is gone. I don't care about the code once I'm shot. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying, I'm, I'm try there are a lot of people like myself who, who will result to giving you up because I have no way of getting back at you. I'm so glad you've got a line here. <laughs> Re <laughs> Revenge I, is very important to I me when it comes so much to a lot of people. I feel so much better. <laughs> but, really do. but a lot of times I didn't rat because once you rat, also, uh -oh. you will lose all street connections. People, I have no way of making money. If That's I right. get certain you burn all the bridges you haven't even got to yet. Exactly. If you, and if you burn bridges, no one will sell you coke. No one will sell you so dope. When you no look one, at Michael, when you look in the mirror, do you see a good guy, bad guy? When I look in the mirror, I see a bad guy for good reasons. So you think you're Robin Hood? Is that your deal? No, I don't think I'm Robin Hood because Robin Hood gave the strangers. I'm giving them my children. Okay. I'll kill anybody for my kids. I'm saying, but uh, but as far as doing crime, I, I don't make as I don't I don't make as much money. Never have and don't now as much as I could if I just loosened up my moral code. Same thing with you, Howard. Have you ever killed anybody? I can't answer that question. There's no statute of limitations on murder. I can't. I can. I can. I can so, tell you stories. So, yeah, I, mean, I can stand so no, around murder. No, no, would, would, wouldn't bother you. So you didn't say no. But you know, it's all hypothetical. All right, well, whatever. Well, no. Well, sometimes murder is necessary. The death penalty. I agree with the death penalty. If someone is a child molester, if someone has certain committed certain heinous crimes, then I agree with the death penalty. That makes me a murderer, too. I would pull the switch on this Colorado shooter. That makes me a murderer. But it's for the right reasons, as far as I'm concerned. You're sure, you're sure it was him, right? <laughs> Whoever the Joker was, or if Whoever I think it it's the Joker, it would make me feel better. If it was somebody... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was but, the, uh, the moral dilemma at the end of uh, uh, Eastwood's um, uh, Boston drama. Mystic River. Mystic River, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, what gives you the right to be judge, jury, prosecutor, and Who, me, myself? Yes, sir. What gives me the right to be a judge, jury, and a prosecutor? And, and, and executor. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not a, a vigilante. I'm not that. I'm just an American citizen. I'm a man who's made some mistakes, which has limited my access 
uh, capital. So because I have a very limited... Getting involved with crime, especially at a young age, was the same as dabbling with drugs. Once you get a criminal record, there is a real glass ceiling. There's but so far you can go making money legally. That's right. And pardon my language, but fuck that. I don't want the money that's afforded to me legally. I want white man's money. That's what I want. And as you pointed out in your book, which, by the way, Chili Pimpin in Atlantic City is an excellent book by several copies how, how, today. How, 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 how do we get that? How do we get it? You can, you, can, uh, you can get it instantly on a download. I would imagine you can get it in paperback. Uh, it's from Strategic Media Books, and it is fantastic. It is, I mean, it's a page-turner. I mean, you'll I'd love like this to, book. Can I say something? Yeah. I'd like to say to anyone who's listening to the show, to the three or four people who are listening to today, <laughs> that's, that's us in the room. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to say that if anyone is a fan of your show and heard this, and you contact me, my name is Michael Gordine, G-O-U-R-D-I-N-E, at Twitter, I will send you a free copy. I will mail it to you wherever you are, free of charge. I have a limited supply, but while supplies last, I will mail it to you for free wherever you are, all expenses paid for by me. How about that for yeah, a deal? Well, that's, uh, that's, that's something. I'm here trying to sell your book, and you're giving it away. <laughs> but that's, well, uh, I, I, it's, not a, it's not about the I'm I'm not a person that, like you said, I'm not so much about the money. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, not, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not penny wise and pound foolish. I, I don't chase pennies. If people buy the book, if people like the book, that makes me happy. But I'd like people, I, I'd more, I'd appreciate you reading it more than buying it. Yeah, you want people to know what's in it. You want them to get that. And uh, being as that I have known, and I don't know if this is the kind of thing one should admit, I have known a lot of chili pips in my time. You are right on target. I mean, everything you say in there, I agree with them saying, the game is to play, not to say. That's right. And uh, <laughs> and as they said to you, what the, the game is to sell, not to tell. That's right. Which, uh, explain that one. Well, a lot of a lot of people as time as time went on, every stage I got to, even with the Irish and Italian cops that taught me a lot of things, their attitude is the game is to be sold and not to be told. Meaning you had to earn, you had to help them make money in order to learn these secrets. They weren't just going to give it to you. You were going to have to either pay them out of your pocket or help them in some way make tons of cash. And especially with that bone collector thing, and with certain amounts of narcotics, and uh, at one point uh, I, I caught a, uh, an assistant medical examiner who was a necrophiliac. Oh, my God. His, he was doing his thing in the morgue, and I got this guy to look the other way, and we became like, uh, and he would call us whenever people had gold teeth, Morning. and Morning. we'd be pulling them out of people's heads. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Hey, Whenever, hey, Michael, we're, we have to wrap up. It's, you know what? Can, will you come back uh, sometime in the future, near, near future? Whenever... I hear the Mighty Mouse. It, 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 just, just email me the Mighty Mouse theme, and I will respond. There we go. Right? There we go. Wonderful. I'll tell you. See what a connection that we have here. Good man. Good man. Yeah, Marshall Bear. Where is he now? Uh, <laughs> my family. Okay, and this guy's well read too. He read up on us. Uh, Chili pimping in Atlantic City. Get him free. Get him while you can. Thanks for being a fantastic guest. And uh, if you come out to L.A., do you ever get out here? Do not. I, I, I've been to L Los Angeles. I, I, I've been to Man's Theater. Are you? Are you in? in 
attorney. You've had more than your fair share of wives, I believe. I guess not enough. <laughs> well, you've got one now. I just I haven't seen the expiration date on her yet. <laughs> you know, some people, as they say, strive for greatness. Others have greatness thrust upon them. And there, there are those who seek fame and notoriety. Wow, you're just flowering today. And then there are those who never planned on fame, never planned on notoriety. Good example. And then one day... Mary Jo, you were the last person who ever expected this degree of notoriety. Am I correct? Watch out. Am I correct? Yes, you are very correct. This is a hell of a way to get attention. I don't recommend it. <laughs> no, I, I would not think so. Uh, I mean, th there you were living what you thought was a normal life. Yeah, yeah Don, I mean, where, where were you? I could have used Don services a few uh, years ago. <laughs> well, I was here on the West Coast and you were somewhere else. I guess. I guess. Tell us about how the incident played out originally for our listeners. Well, uh, it was back, it'll be 18 years this year, can you believe it? May 19th. No, because it's, it's, it, it never seems to go away because of your ex and his annex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he even, he even did a bad job repairing our producer's car. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's actually true. Yeah. What what made them go there? I mean, well, well it, was, it was here, and uh, Matt can tell you himself if we can get him back in the room. Uh, I was here in Los Angeles, and I guess Al Goldstein uh, introduced the two of them and said, Hey, uh, ah. Joey will do a fine job on your car. <laughs> Wrong. But that's that's ah. a whole other... We'll let Matt tell that story. But Oh, he's, he, he walks by. All right, let's go back 18 yeah. years. I want to hear the replay again. Okay. All right. Well, I was, you know, at the time, I was a 37-year-old housewife with two young children who were 12 and 9, 
and I lived in the town that I grew up in, and Joey and I, and we both grew up and lived in the same neighborhood all of our lives. And uh, one day, I'm in the backyard painting a bench, which I had planned to do because the weather was so nice, and the doorbell rang, and I could see through the backyard, through the front, and see this girl standing outside, and it was 12 o'clock on a Tuesday, the sun is shining, and cars are driving by, and lawnmowers are lawnmowering. Another day in suburbia. Exactly, in a town where nothing like this ever happens, ever. And um, I went and answered the door, and you know, when I went, she said, are you Mrs. Buttafuoco? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I need to talk to you about your husband, Joe. And I said, okay. So, you know, there's no thought that, I mean, she knows who I am, and I see beyond her, I see a kid, another guy, in a car across the street. So my first thought was up, they're looking for an estimate for the car and that because that had right. not gone on for years that's what he did if somebody had an accident he'd say i'll bring it by the shop and we'll take a look at it so that was my thought and i stepped outside and i didn't you know she was a young teenage girl she was 17 at the time but to me she looked like she was about 12 um and she proceeded to tell me that joey was having an affair with her little sister and with her little sister. Now, if she's 12 and she's got a little sister, that's just sounding really scary. I'm looking at her and I'm going, and that was like the very first thing I said. I went, your little sister? How old are you? I didn't accept what she said. I started questioning her. And she said, well, I'm 19 and my sister is 16. And I go, okay, what's your name? And she gave me a name. She said, my name is Anne Marie. And we talked for about a minute and a half, and I said to her, I'm having a hard time believing what you're telling me, but listen, I'll go in the house, and I'll tell Joe that you came by. And in my own head, I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake, what did he do now? What's he up to now? (laughs) But I didn't take it. I had no fear. I had no thought that anything was going to happen to me. And in that second that I said, I'm going to go in and call Joe and tell him you came by, I turned my head to the right. I apparently got my hand on the screen door because they said afterwards the police said there was blood on the inside of the door jam. And in that split second, she pulled a gun out of her pocket, aimed it at my head, and pulled the trigger. Wow. And do you remember anything from that impact at all? I remember everything. And the impact, I felt like I had got hit in the head with a baseball bat. My only conscious thought before I went out was where did she get the bat like I knew I had been slammed somehow it didn't hurt but I felt this impact and this explosion I heard it but I didn't know what it was you are the luckiest woman on the face of the earth yeah to be here and talking to us and you still got that bullet in there don't you Mary Jo yes yes it was from a 25 caliber so it was a small Gun, but you know, trust me, any gun is. Any yeah. gun, is any gun that shoots you in the head is not the gun you want, right? I was going to say, when she hit me, uh, she was only about three inches from it, from wow. my skull. So it, the impact, it went in, and I was in motion, and I guess she was in motion because it just happened so fast that it, the impact, it went in like right in front of my ear. Uh, and like slammed into my temporal mandibular joint, and then took, and then broke up, and took this downwards. Uh, projection 
toward my spinal column, and, and that's mm. right there. It's about a quarter of an inch away oh, from geez. that. Oh, right? geez. Wasn't she wearing a T-shirt with his uh, auto shop on it? She brought it to me. It was one. It was the prop, I guess, when, when um, she said she had proof that her little sister was having an affair with Joe. She handed me the auto body shirt. Now, here's where, th- this is how we found out who, what happened or who did this. Um, Joey always, his, his parents, his family had owned this auto body shop for 35, 40 years. This was a well-established business on Long Island. It was a family-run business. And just like banks used to give out pens or toasters right. or whatever, um, they would give T-shirts out. They had so t-shirts. anybody could have one of these. It was no... No, well, no. no here's, here's the difference. The week before I got shot, Joe had come home with the new T-shirts. They had been polo shirts up to that point. No collar, just a regular T-shirt. And this new batch was the golf shirts with the two buttons with, with a collar. Right. And, you know, we all wore them. I wore them for painting. The kids wore them for uh, going to sleep in. As, as my daughter used to wear it. It would be long on her as, as pajamas. Right. And so there was nothing to it. He came home with this new batch of T-shirts. and said it, the logo was a little different. It was brand new. So the, what happened was I went into a coma, and they made an assumption that a man did this. It had to be a man because the... My backyard, you could see, I had been painting. The can was open, the brush was on the can, it was a bench was half-painted. And the assumption at the time was she must have been attacked in the backyard and ran around to the front of the house because I was shot out in the front. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I woke up and I said it was a girl. First of all, that blew them away when I said it was a teenage girl. And I I couldn't speak because I had a a uh, tracheotomy and they had a tube in me for breathing. But I remembered the things she said. I remember she said she was 19. I remembered her. She said her name was Anne-Marie. And I motioned to them. They gave me a yellow pad. And I started writing down these things. Anne-Marie, 19 years old, T-shirt. I wrote this down. And they couldn't believe, like, she's got to be out of her mind. What do you mean a 19-year-old girl? They just had no idea or thought that that could even be in the realm of a possibility. How quickly did they tie this into Joey? Well, when... When I did come to and they took the tubes out and, and um, they started, the police came in and started questioning me, I said it was one of the new T-shirts, Joe. It was one of the new ones, the ones we just got last week. And he turned around and very nonchalantly said, I only gave out one of those shirts and that was to Mr. Fisher's daughter. That's mm-hmm. what he said. And then they said, who's that? And she said, he said, Amy Fisher. And they looked at me and said, are you sure that her name wasn't Amy? And I said, no, she told me her name was Anne Marie. And they wound up going back to the auto body shop and getting um, the papers, because she had had her car repaired there like two dozen times. Probably due, parents- probably due to the fine quality of his work. <laughs> well, it was then. <laughs> that's I, I that's a play on words. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how they arrested her, and I put, you know, pulled her out of a lineup. I said, that's her. It's amazing that and you the rest li- is history. It's amazing that you lived. It was uh, yeah, I, I to this day I I wonder. I remember my friends saying to me when they first heard when the word went out that Mary Jo was shot in the head in front of her house uh, and that we don't know if she's going to live. I had a couple of friends that said, you know, no offense, but we almost hoped you wouldn't because we thought if if this is a head injury, you'll never be the same. Well, you'll sure. never be Mary Jo. 
And um, that was just something that it, it was just so devastating for the neighborhood. When you, when you found out the truth, what this is the question I've always had about this story. How could you let this man back in your life? I didn't find out the truth for many, many years. Oh, really? Because, as you have probably seen by my book, I was married to a very good sociopath. Mm-hmm. And he told me and convinced me, and not only me, but our entire families, both families, that she was out of her mind, and all he did was fix her car, and that he convinced us. He had us all believing it. This is a man who acted like a wrongly accused man. He was furious when the police came and uh, questioned him about it. Again, this is all what I know from my point of view. So he told you he was just an innocent bystander in the entire incident? Yes, that that he fixed her car, he was friendly with her, he knew her. And, you know, in a business, and when you're in any kind of a business, customer service is is number one. So he took it to an extreme. I guess. I guess. I guess. But he has never to this day admitted it other than what I've seen on television. I mean, he he did get sentenced for... Statutory. Yeah. Right. So... Obviously, something was going on. But then, you see, he convinced us also that this was um, a case of malicious prosecution, and he was only going to take this guilty plea to end it. Oh, he always had a story, and amazingly, he convinced everybody, his our friends, our families. It wasn't like just I was the gullible one. He had us all believing that he was a victim of malicious prosecution. Well, that is one of the characteristics of the sociopath, and I write about a lot of them, is they do have the ability to charm and manipulate. Had you had had it, excuse me, did you have any suspicion that he had been playing around before this incident? Never. That was one of the things, never, ever, ever. Um, if, If there was, I never knew about it. Nobody's ever come forward since. I look back at my life with him, and I write in my book that uh, he was addicted to cocaine for the first 10 years of our marriage. And he went and he got sober in October of 1988. And I feel now, knowing the behavior of a sociopath, he had to replace that life of that living on the edge, which is what sociopaths do, Mm -hmm. with something else. And so the behavior became buy a big boat, buy a fancy car, um... And have an affair with a with a teenage girl. Uh, Mary, Mary Jo, let me let me interject. It's, this is uh, Matt Allen. Not it's Matt Allen, aka Magic Matt. You were probably a huge fan of mine on Z100 in New York back in that day. Hi, Matt. Yeah, it, it's a uh, pleasure. I met your uh, your lovely, luscious husband years ago doing a radio show. In fact, this radio show, but at this time we were in a studio. Al Goldstein walked in because he was booked uh, to be a guest on the show. He walks in with what turns out to be your husband. Joy Buttafuoco. Okay. Now, I was not a fan of this guy, I must tell you. I guess. And so I introduced him as the world's most hated man. And that was my first introduction to Joey. Now, I've known Joey, and we've run into each other off and on for many years. And he did replace an engine in my Mercedes. Turns out... That You're was, a show by yourself. Yeah, it was, the wrong, <laughs> it was the wrong engine. It was an engine for a different model Mercedes. So, Why am I not surprised? So I, I, You know, it's running really rough, and I can't get it. Yeah. So I bring it to another guy, and I say, well, that's a wrong friggin' engine. So I bring it back to him, and he finds another engine. I also had him do body work, and it was, I must tell you... 
It's sloppy, but it, it happened here in the Valley in Los Angeles. Right. So he was probably had his act together there in Long Island with a family business, but came out here, and I don't know what the hell he was doing. But I don't think he knew either. But, you know, my question, and, and thank you for uh, spending some time with the great Burl Bear and Don Waldman and, and now uh, myself here on this show, minding his own business. Um, I need to know, in all the years that I have, have talked to him, I've run into him at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch in in. Uh, in Nevada, uh, you know, time and time again, once a year I run into him, or he'll mm-hmm. uh, hear it, somebody, hey, yo, Magic Matt, and it's him, and it's Joey, you know, somewhere on Sunset uh, near the whiskey. And so, right. but to this day, he swears up and down, and I have, you know, when he's snockered and we're both drunk, yep. he swears up and down that nothing ever happened with Amy Fisher. He never had sexual relations with that woman. Most men will never cop out to the truth but, in that situation. Matt. But married. But what is your gut? What does your gut tell you? Did he or did he not mess around? You're a woman who should know, for God's sakes. Well, now my gut says, of course it happened. Right. But was it an affair, a love affair? Did he want me dead? And you know her? Ma- no. Was it something, it was that, that risky behavior that sociopaths need to, to mm-hmm. have, it's in their brain, right. that I'm sure, you know, she was a very sexual young girl. Right, and, and, nuts, so, and, and nuts as the day is long. So Why could you say that? What you're saying is your husband, you do believe that even though he, time and time again, and he's 100%, uh, uh, He's never backed off the fact that, right. no, I have not had the any sort of sexual relationship. Okay, you do believe he did have some sort of thing w- with her, but I'm with you. I don't believe that he put her up to anything. No, not, no harm to you. You know, the guy's, the, the guy's maybe a scumbag, but he's, I don't right. think he's a killer. Yeah, usually what happens in this kind of a syndrome is that he says, I love you, but you know nothing can ever come of our relationship on a permanent basis because I've got a wife. And that's yeah, how it, oh, yeah. there is your motive. I want to ask Matt a question. Yeah. So what you were saying is, you know, you run into him every once in a while. Yeah. Is he not like the friendliest, the nicest? I was, I was about to say this. When I introduced him that one day, many years ago, as the world's most hated man, the, the guy charmed the friggin' pants off me. Charmed you know? the pants, not literally, but... but <laughs> You're wrong gender. But, well, that's encouraging. He is, <laughs> Joey Buttafuoco is one of the most charming characters you will ever meet in yep. your life. Well, well, she fell in love with him, for yep. heaven's sakes, and was married he, to him he, and stayed with him. He is, man. He's one of those guys that you can't help but like. And, and is that, that amazing? I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that. It's I had no true. idea you'd be on this show. Or, and that's why... When I write about this, it's like everybody loves it's, Joe. It's and, true. I wanted to hate the guy, and yeah. and it's like uh, what's his name from the uh, the OJ? Uh, who's the guy? He's been over here a bunch of times. The blonde guy, Kato Kato. Kato Kato. I wanted to hate that guy. There's another charming character. Of course, he didn't kill anyone, as far as we know. <laughs> but but neither yeah. did your husband. But yes, you are correct. He is charming as hell, and and uh, you know we do sort of look at you as as sort of and with. With all due respect, sort of a big dummy for hanging in there right. and, and defending this guy, because whether he put someone up to try to kill you or not, damn it, there was a lot of harm done to you with a big old gunshot to your head, man. That's wrong. When I look back now and realize this is a mental behavior that that he has, and he didn't. It's never going to get fixed. It's never going to get. Uh, cured. He can't take a pill for it. He can't go to therapy for it. 
You're right. Being a sociopath has no conscience and no uh, feelings of remorse. Mary so Jo, in fairness to you with children, you wanted to believe him. Well, I, you're right. Of course I did. I'd never heard of this girl before. I'd never seen her before. It wasn't like, oh, my God, she's back. I mean, this came literally out of the blue. The shot in the head was out of the blue. And nobody seemed to know, nobody ever saw her with him. Um, people were saying that Joey was this wonderful family man who loved his children and his wife. And always, it, it was... Well, it's a it believable scenario, absolutely. because it's possible to have stalkers. I've had them. Uh, maybe Matt's had them. Uh, you can get a 17-year-old girl who gets obsessive and gets wacko. And no. she was stalking me uh, six months. They, the police did uh, establish, because two young teenage boys came forward, that six months earlier she wanted them to kill me. She paid them oh. money and she gave them oral sex. And that's recorded Boy. in the police reports. Um, I bet the guys and, got the sex and didn't kill you, right? Well, they took the money and the sex, as most stupid 17-year-olds would <laughs> well, do. They, they were too stupid. Hey, Mary Jo, <laughs> Mary Jo, it's, Mary jo, it's Matt, Matt here again. Before before I take off here, I, I, I do want to say that, you know, sort of the scummy thing about your uh, your ex-husband is that he he loved the spotlight and oh, yeah. you <laughs> noticed huh i spent i've spent a lot of time with with her ex-husband and this man eats up showbiz yep. Uh, to the point where I, I mean, I've been in show business since I was a kid, and this guy is ridiculous when it comes to loving the spotlight. Well, Matt, as you probably know, he's been making periodic appearances with Amy Fisher on Howard Stern show for years. I know, I know, and I, I and so no matter how charming he is, he is a bit of a scumbag. And if he wants to come over here, am I going to say no, no? I because he'll charm me into it again. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad, hey, Mary Jo. I must tell you, I'm glad that you're alive, and I hope you make some some bucks with this book because you deserve something out of this friggin' gunshot to the head. Oh, well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks. he's a good-hearted guy, no Mary, matter what they say about at, it. At what point did you decide that you wanted to write a book about this? Well, really, I mean, I've been approached for years to do this, and I was always like, no, it's an old story. You've seen the TV movies. I mean, it's just, I never wanted to go back there. It was so insane for so many years. And what convinced me to write the book was my, my son and I, uh, who was now 30, who was 12 years old when this happened, we were uh, having dinner and we were talking about his father and it was during the period that him and Amy Fisher, that, that Joey and Amy Fisher went into Manhattan and they were going on a date and they were going to divorce their spouses and uh, try to do a reality together. show and Oh, oh, my God. And I ugly. Mean, you know, we did not know this and any of us until we saw it on television and my my kids were furious. I mean, they were furious. Like, how dare he? How could he do this? This is the woman who tried to kill our mother. And But, you know, with Joe, it doesn't matter. That was a long time ago, and so what? But what what happened was, I, for the umpteenth time, I, I said to my son, what? I don't get him. I don't get this. I don't get why he does this. I don't understand why he doesn't think of us when he does this. And my son, matter-of-factly, said, because he's a sociopath, Mom. And I couldn't wrap my head around that word. I always thought of a sociopath as a Ted Bundy or a Charlie. Well, yeah, Dan. that's where you yeah, get it's, into it's the, kind of a coverall word. Well, you, that's the difference between like the psychopath and the sociopath. Right. So I, it disturbed me enough that I sat down at the computer and I put the word in and I just started reading everything I could about it. And it was during that time that the hair stood on the back of my neck and I went, "Oh my God." This is what I've been living with. This is what Joe is. 
And all of my life, the stories, the, the, uh, the behaviors, everything pointed to he is a sociopath. And he is in that percentage. They say between like 1% and 4% of the adult population are yeah. sociopaths. And the interesting thing is one of the world's leading experts on sociopaths and psychopaths is Dr. Robert Hare of Vancouver, British yes. Columbia. And he helped me a great deal with, uh, with a book I did called Murder in the Family. And, yes, and I, I looked at all his readings and writings also and came to this conclusion, and I started reliving some of the stories that in my head you know, before I got shot, just things that I didn't see this. I didn't realize that you can be a sociopath and live. You know, you're not going to murder anybody, no, but you're going to no. rip them off or rob like Matt, like he got his car fixed and it was the wrong thing because they probably probably took the money and put in crappy stuff. And this is what they <laughs> you do. got that right. They do, yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that... Uh, it is possible for sociopaths to live lives that do not involve that sort of behavior, uh, especially if you can catch them by the time they're 14. Uh, and, and there's an interesting thing that you, you think you'll find this interesting anyway, Mary Jo. Uh, there was a forum on the Internet of talking about sociopaths, and a sociopath came on and said, Hi, I'm a sociopath. I don't do these things that you're talking about. Because, like all sociopaths, I don't think of anyone but myself. And I have learned that if I do these things, my life will be bad. Bad things will happen to me. I'll go to jail. This will happen. That's So I've made a conscious choice not to do the symptomatic things that I would do if I didn't know better. So it is possible... I Possible, but I you... don't know. I disagree with that because to me, I've always thought if you think you're a sociopath, you're not because that seems to be the issue. I think These you're right. People have no conscience. Or yes, no, no con yeah, especially the side have no conscience. I will carve a turkey, carve a person. Uh, uh, and respectfully, well, you, you yeah. hung in with this guy for a number of years after this. Oh, yeah. Well, for, you know, I people ask me that, and that's one of the that's the subtitle why I stayed. Um, at this. I was shot in the head. I almost died. I was as good as dead. They brought me back. Um, I had years of agony and, and operations. I had two small children that our house was a crime scene. The media was in front of our house constantly. It was a barrage nonstop. Um, I was too sick. I was raised Irish Catholic. I believed Joe. We all did. So the insanity of it, what I got caught up in, I was not mentally capable of, of, of understanding. Of course, plus, you're, tr you're, tr you're a traumatized woman physically and emotionally. And there had been no issue of infidelity before that day. There had been other issues, but certainly not, not that. that. When did you really start to suspect the truth here? I, You know, I think about it, and... You know, I try to realize, like, I was a willing victim of this. I, I bought into this, but I was well-versed. I was in the relationship for 20 years the day I got shot. Um, it's It was never one aha moment, like, you know what, he did sleep with her. Because to this day, I don't know. He tells me he didn't, just like he told Matt. He doesn't do it. But she said they did. Now, she also said that she got he got her the gun, and he set her up. And, and she has since said, no, that was the attorney who, you know, right. tried to do the Joey made me do it defense. But there's no videotape of the two of them. It's their words. You've got the words of a sociopath and a psychopath. <laughs> I don't... Put them together, and what have you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. But there seems yeah, to be a clue go. when he pleaded guilty to statutory rape. Oh, 
but my goodness, was that a grandstanding? I'm only doing this because, you see, the original charge was 19 counts of statutory rape, meaning Oy. 19 different sexual acts, uh, each one carrying one and a third to four years. So they come after you and say, okay, do you want to go to jail for the rest of your life because... Uh, you had sex with this with this underage girl who, by the way, shot your wife. But you know who cares, <laughs> who cares about, about that? that yeah. Um, and then so it was it was this overzealous prosecution, which it was, because it's like 19 counts. What were they counting the the oral sex and the, the hands and the it was just silly. <laughs> Armpits, back of the knees. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So and this was based on Amy Fisher's word. Now at the time, I'm like, this girl came to my house and took a gun out and shot me. This is not a able person so i got on the bandwagon of you're going after my husband he didn't do anything you should be blaming her she came here tried to kill me end of story i don't care what she says she also said to me that her name was Anne marie and she said she had a little sister and she said you know so i got caught up in that she's a liar and you're believing her over him so the point was after like a year and a half of this when they said they were going after joe full guns with this it was, of course, well, you know, for the good of the country and to end this, I will, I will cop a plea, one count, which is a six-month sentence, and I will serve four months. Oh, it's a smart thing to do. be over. Mm. So we thought so. We thought if we'd let him go to trial, like you said, he was the most hated man in the world at the time, that he was never going to get a fair trial. A change of venue had been rejected. It just, it wasn't... Well, I think you did, I, I think you did the right thing in sticking up for... For him at this particular point, yeah, but that's also, that also point, very tough if he's got 19 counts. Oh yeah, I mean that's too him. much. That is overzealous. Yeah, it, it it really was. And the and the funny thing was the 19 counts were over four days. So <laughs> what a busy man! I know. <laughs> Say, honey, so almost, you could testify whether you could testify whether that whether or not that was an accurate portrayal of his abilities and stamina. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the Nassau County Police almost made themselves look stupid by charging him with 19 counts of, of statutory rape over, in a four-day period. It, it was like just overkill. It was like, oh, my gosh. But they did that, I think, so that they could get a, a, a lesser conviction. Yeah, that's standard get... operating procedure in a lot of these criminal cases. They right. just put as many counts in there as possible to cop a deal. Right. Now, I want to go move on to, to, to something else here. With the shot in the head... Uh, you must have been in a lot of pain. You wanted, yeah. <laughs> I guess. I would imagine, having not been shot in the head, I can't say right. speak from experience, but I would imagine that you could wind up being dependent upon those pain pills for a hell right. of a long time. Absolutely. I was. For, for seven years, I was. Now, also, and as I understand it, at some point in time, she started contacting you. Um, well, that the, the, again, got uh, did you plug the book, Getting It Through My Six Skulls? Yeah, that's a great title, too. That's a marvelous title. Um, it, it was a process. In the book, I write about the process. I, this happened. I'm, I'm in pain. I'm in agony. I have to have surgeries. I have all these problems. I, I take more pills, more pills. Joe gets arrested again for soliciting a hooker in L.A. three years later. I start to take these pills just because I'm tired of, of thinking and feeling. I'm just defeated and depressed. We uh, move out to L.A. It was there that I got help and went, went into the Betty Ford Center. And it was there that I learned that this depression that I had was this anger that I had at everybody, my husband, my her. Oh, you've been carrying it around for years. Right. So that was the beginning of the turnaround of that process. And then when that happened, a few months after I was sober, 
I got a call from Amy Fisher's lawyer that she wanted to send me a letter. Now, this is seven years after I'd been shot, so this took a long time. <laughs> what did you say and to him? she wrote me a couple of letters apologizing. Well, that was nice of her. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, listen, not too many people get that, uh, the fact that she did. I, I, was, I was grateful to get that. I mean, didn't well, she? Well, she, you go through the program, and she's the one making amends. There's well, but here's, here's the other side of it. Was she really trying to make amends, or was she trying to get out of jail early? Um, now I know she was trying to get out of jail. Early. Okay. Uh, that's just my opinion. But I mean, taking it at face value, the woman did try to apologize. She did, um, but I believe it was all part of the I'm a, I'm a good girl now, and uh, you know I learned my lesson, and I bought it. I bought into it because I wanted to. Exactly. Uh, say I have to let this down. I have to let it go. I can't hate this person for the rest of my life. It's just eating me up inside. So um, she ha she was retried in 1999, and I publicly forgave her, and she got out of jail after serving like seven and a half years, but they put her on four years of um, parole. Make sure she doesn't shoot anybody else. Yeah. Well. You know, I, I look at her now all these years later, and, you know, you see what she is. She's a stripper and an X-rated porn person. and it's, Everyone it's needs a, a hobby, yeah. Well, what else is she going to do? Yeah, I mean, what 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 is her her life skills? You know, I guess well, she has could only capitalize on uh, on her one famous bad deed. I think there's a lot of self loathing there that she just can't get over what she did to me, and this is how she is living her life in in, in this way. You know, one thing that I, I find fascinating, and, and I started the program with it, of the thing of people. Some people seek out the limelight, and others have it thrust upon them you certainly had it thrust upon you with a loud bang that day and yeah. after everything you've been through and then doing this book and having gone through betty ford for the the painkiller things i don't know if you're in a program or not but now you are in a place where you can be of significant value to other women or other men for that matter yeah one of the taglines to your book is why people involved with sociopaths what they need to know what they need to know and I didn't know any of this. I didn't realize that these kind of people existed. I thought you were either a bad person or a good person. And understanding the behavior of the sociopath, they can go through their whole lives hurting other people, but not to the point, that, like my case, but divorce or, or cheating or, or robbing. I, I, you know, I use Bernie Madoff as an example of a classic sociopath. This is a man who carried out this stuff for years and years and years, and he duped thousands and thousands of people. He's very good. He wasn't violent. But when you have no conscience or remorse, you don't care what you do. You do it with a smile on your face. You tell the people all the stuff they want to hear, the right things that they want to hear. They, they know how to read people, mm -hmm. and that's what the majority of sociopaths are. So when you're with one of them, and there's just chaos in your life, and... They get these, they're so nice, and everybody likes them, and you can't figure out what they, it's like this Jekyll and Hyde thing. What it is, it's, this could be what it is. And if I had seen the signs 20 years ago before I got shot and realized this man is never going to change, I might have gotten out of the marriage. I didn't know that this existed, and that's what I'm hoping that I can bring to light now, that this is it's out there. It's one percent oh, of the I'm population. Oh, I'm very, very, very well aware of it. Uh, you know, as, as you're probably aware of having talked to Dr. Robert Hare, that even rhymes, uh, you can make someone a sociopath or even a psychopath by a combination of head injury, 
uh, and which you've had. So I'm glad to see you haven't become one. And emo- emotional and or sexual abuse. Uh, I've things that I had a head injury when I was a child. That explains everything. It does, yes. Uh, I do have some of the symptoms of a sociopath. Okay. Uh, but awareness enough I of, got a them, list. <laughs> of them is yeah, the, I'm listening. <laughs> that you are correct on the living on the edge part. Uh, the, almost a uh, an, uh, an addiction to, uh, although not as extreme as some other members of my family. You know, I, I can't of, of that nine one one addiction of being in an emotional nine one one state. And I think Joey must have had that. Well, but you know, on a, on a current basis, you must be very interested in what's going on with Tiger Woods and his conduct. I watched, you know, this. Obviously, I've even a few TV shows I've quoted on it. And um, but I don't see him as a sociopath. I see him as an idiot, but I don't <laughs> see him as a sociopath. I'll tell you. If, if, well, but but here's the other side of it. Obviously, when you get involved with other women on the level he is, isn't he putting his own family at risk? Of course, he is. He's more narcissistic. And mm-hmm. from what I've seen and read and heard about him over the years through all of this, you know, he doesn't have. He didn't have that personality that people were drawn and. Friendly. I heard he was very like standoffish and kind of like I'm who I am, and you know you can take it or leave it. And he, when he did say, I felt that I was above all of this, that I was entitled to this. That's the classic signs of a narcissist, which the rules don't apply mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. And of course, he's hurting his family. Now he's sorry because he got caught. Yeah, I'll, I'll, tell you, right. I'll tell you one thing: if if I went after my spouse with a nine iron, I'd be in leg irons. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he denies that. You well, know. no, no. She went after him with the nine iron. Uh, of course she did. I, and you know what? And it, it amazes me that she wasn't arrested for that. Well, I don't think because, we, you know, there's no proof that he, she hit him with it. I think she beat the car up more than him. And she was probably screaming uh, at Auto him. assault. <laughs> well, there had to be some reason why at two in the morning he hit a tree from, the, from his car. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a man who... On, yeah, again, he could have solved... None of this would have happened if he had never gotten married and never had kids. Like, what was this need? And I think that was because of the sponsorships that he had to appear as this all-American yeah, like guy with a beautiful <laughs> wife and the children, and that's why he got these sponsorships. There was no need. He's, like, he's been married four years. He has a couple of babies. What the heck? You were doing this years before, and you were doing it all through. Why this need to be married to this woman? I think that was to BS the, the, the corporations and the sponsors. Yeah, that's a, well, I, there's another thing involving celebrities and typically athletes. I mean, women literally are falling all over them. They're more than just available. They'll find them in their rooms at night, even though they're not invited. And it's a monstrous temptation unless you're a very strong person to stay away from it. Well... Tiger could have been like a George Clooney, and nobody would have thought twice. This was came out with nobody would have reacted twice. As long as the guy could play a good game of golf, who cares how many women he would have been sleeping with? That's true. I mean, after all, I do a great radio show. Who cares who I sleep with? After the two of you split, then, of course, Joey ends up in an auto insurance fraud case. Yeah. Which kind of verifies the sociopath aspect of him. Oh, it, it, it's just ongoing and it's funny matt's not there is he still uh he's around somewhere we can find him oh (laughs) because it's it's interesting to know this where he said he brought his car there and he brought it there again and he brought it there again even though he heard all this i'm sure joey told him ah you know this is going to be okay this is going to be great like here's a man who kept going back 
Now here's ma- the- here's Matt right now. He came back. Speaking of, of social pass coming back, here's yes, Matt. You're talking Allen. about his coming back and I'm back. Come, come out of my closet. <laughs> Good morning. Well, Matt, I'm interested to say, like you said, even though you got shoddy work done or you found out after the fact that it wasn't the right job, you went back. You kept going back. Well, because, come, what, we, did he? Yeah, like I, I went back once. It was an insurance deal, so you know he's doing uh, doing it as inexpensively as possible, and then uh, making a, a ton from the insurance company. Did he convince you that he made a mistake in putting in the wrong? Well, engine? I knew he was full of crap, but I, <laughs> but I said so. Put it, put the right engine in there. You know, right. and then he finally did. But it, it, that engine ended up blowing up later, and then, then I stopped, you know, dealing with him. But no. I, it, finally, <laughs> it's funny. It's, uh, it's but it's damn near worth the story. You know that Joey Buttafuoco put the wrong. Friggin' engine in my car. I mean, it's it's almost worth the, the, this happening. So you can a, talk about it on the radio. Yeah, it's it's very consistent with who he is. Yeah, it's true. So, hey, but that's Matt. That's yeah. what we were speaking about. About he's gotten uh, busted for insurance fraud in, yeah. I guess in 2004. So this has been going on. Forget about it. Yeah, that's you know that's what, that's him. That's hey, Lori. Did you sign in? Did you say hi to Mary Joe? Lori Downey Jr. Come over here, please. Grab this microphone. He's not a Long Islander here. The great uh, Laurie Downey Jr., who, who grew up uh, on the island and, uh, well, then eventually married uh, the great Morton Downey Jr., which makes her Laurie Downey Jr. Let me uh, give her the headphones. <laughs> Say hi to Mary Jo, because you, you are so familiar with this area. And, right. You know, and probably Joey. Hi, Mary Jo. Hi, Laurie. You know, you sound terrific. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you know you what? I'm much. wondering, how are your children doing through this? Good question. Well, the children are 27 and 30 now. Um, you know, they certainly were affected by this. This this destroyed their life as as they knew it. Well, yeah, you've got and to go back in the, at, at their. You have to go back in time to their ages when this happened. Yeah, to be nine years old and 12 years old, and it's bad enough. First of all, mommy's almost been murdered. And then your house turns into a three-ring circus, and your life turns into a three-ring circus, and then they go after your father, your mommy. It was just, it just, I know they've got a lot of scars from it. And but the only one they, enjoying it is Joey. <laughs> you know, it's true. He, he doesn't get it. He never will. And it was my son, thank God, who said that, because my son is not like his father at all, which is a good, good thing. Good thing. And neither is my daughter. He's... he's Joe has a pathological need to lie constantly. And be in the limelight. I mean, he was involved. Remember there was that celebrity boxing show? <laughs> God, and he, he was going to have a fight with John Wayne Bobbitt? Oh, <laughs> I, I wasn't married to him. I remember this stuff. And like you said, I just would always shake my head. He doesn't care. He made a sex tape with his wife. He Oi. doesn't care. Care oh, that yeah. he does as long as he's well, out there and being talked. Did anybody about, buy it? Well, the proof that he doesn't care is that Bob had gotten trouble and that uh, his opposition turned out to be a female wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> but at least Joey won the fight. <laughs> uh, so if Joey gets paid money, he will do anything. That's the anything. answer. So now, now that you, you you went through Betty Ford, you got over the painkiller thing. You got kind of a whole new perspective. Yeah, reminded of the story. The lady looks out the window and she sees her three kids playing with skunks, and she yells, "Run, kids, run!" And each kid picks up a skunk and runs. And I think, like for twenty some years, you were carrying those skunks. You know the uh, yeah. And you finally put them down. 
Again, I started very young with him. I've knew, knew, known him all of my life. Uh, we were teenagers, hanging out with the same friends together. Um, I look back now, and we have all grown up, and he hasn't. That Everybody I've ever known, brothers, sisters, parents, friends, we've all grown up, and he is the only one that hasn't. Do your kids have any contact with him? Yes, they, they do. Um, I don't ask. And they don't often tell because they are adults, and it's not my business. I don't need to have any contact with Joe. And, I mean, if they say to me, oh, yeah, I went out with Dad last night, and, you know, he did that, 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 I just go, oh, okay. I don't offer advice, and um, they don't really ask, which is, which is the way it should be. I'm, the, I'm, you know, their mother. I'm not their spy. They can make their own decisions. Now, as far as romance goes, I bet it took a while before you felt comfortable trusting a guy again. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> You think, yes. Yeah. I, I write that in the book, too. I went, was alone. After I left Joe in 2000, I was alone for two and a half years. But actually, it turned out to be good because I went from my parents' house to getting married to having kids. I had never been alone. And now at this stage, my, my children are grown up, and I'm getting a divorce. And what am I going to do with my life? So I, I did. I did a lot of self-reflecting. I went back to school still was not aware of what Joe was, not, not then. I didn't figure this out until about two years ago. I couldn't put a name on what he was. Um, and, yeah, And then this man, I met, you know, I started dating, but not for a long, long time. And I thought, I'm done. I'm never, who's going to want to marry me or be with me, for God's sake? Look who my ex-husband is. And I met this wonderful man, and uh, we've been together almost eight years now. And how does he deal with you being in the limelight? He is so wonderful. He's so supportive. I said, this is a man who is a man. He's very secure in his own manliness. What other man could put up with me constantly talking about my ex-husband <laughs> and the life with my ex-husband? And, he, and he's proud of me. He says, you've got a message to tell Mary Jo, and you need to tell it. Now, that, well, that's a good question. I mean, that's one of the things you talk about in your book is, what did you learn from all this? What did I learn from life? <laughs> life is a learning process. I'm still learning stuff. I, I've learned to forgive. I've learned to get stronger when I wanted to be weak. I've learned to forgive when I didn't want to, when I wanted to continue to hate. Um, I've learned that, you know, you have to love even when you don't want to love anymore. It's just, it's life. It's the lessons in life. But the, the important thing about it is, Listen, we all screw up, we all make mistakes, we all do poor, poor judgment on some things, but if we learn from them and grow up from them and move on, then, then it's okay, that's worth it. That's the quote in, in the very beginning of the book that I love from Maya Angelou was, I did then what I knew then, but when I knew better, I did better. Yeah. Well, you had to have learned because otherwise you couldn't have the relationship you appear to have now with your present spouse. Oh, yes. A lot of people do seem to go back into the pattern of, well, I, this is all I know. Mm -hmm. I knew once I was done with Joe, like, I'd never go you back. You knew you didn't again. want that again. I knew it. I knew it. Now, you know, I'd rather be alone than be miserable again. And, and that was, so it was okay in my own head. It was like, I'm, I'm fine with myself. I'll be more content with myself. 
this this is icing on the cake to meet a man who shares my values and shares my morals and shares my principles and who is a partner and not another child that I have, which is what Joe was all of my men. Well, you're familiar with the uh, you're familiar with the expression. I'm sure there's a distorted sense of security in familiar pain, which is one reason why people do stay. That's pretty esoteric. Well, that's a very clear statement. There is a it's a very clear statement, but I never thought that way. I never thought, gee, I'm not complete unless my life is chaotic and crazy. No, I don't think you have a, people have an awareness of it, but at least there's the pain you know compared to the pain you don't know. I guess. You know, you think back to the statement by Lou Gehrig and it applies to you. You may be the luckiest woman on the face of the earth. Well, that's very sweet, and sometimes when I'm a little tired and maybe a little depressed and saying, oh, why did this happen in my life? Um, I do look back and say, well, what a gift that now it took this many years, but now I have something that I can offer people. And if it, if it helps one person or two people, I'm thrilled. That's wonderful. Then it was all worth going through. Because you could have gone so far out of the spotlight entirely if you'd wanted to. You could have. You know, and I did want to, but it, this was this message to me was more powerful than my selfish need to want to just go away and hide and pretend none of this ever happened. And just this to me was, you know, what this infamy came to me for a reason. This notoriety that came to me for this ridiculous reason. If something good can come out of it, then I'll I'll put myself back out there. Yeah. That, and that, that's a very admirable, admirable thing to do. Well, you sound absolutely great. Now, did you have you have some uh, some further surgery? Even though you still have that bullet resting comfortably within you. Yes, <laughs> now you were on TV, and uh, if I got the story right, you you tell me the, the doctor is seeing you on TV and goes, "Oh, I think I can do something for her." Yeah, um, I was on the Oprah show in two thousand and four, I think, with my daughter. Um, talking about this, and my the right side of my face as a result of being shot is paralyzed. I've uh, lost the hearing in my right ear and um, my, the vision in my right eye, and the, the nerve damage is there, and it's always going to be there. You my God. Severed these, these facial nerves. So I was on there, and this doctor from Beverly Hills, Dr. Azizadeh, who I talk about in the book, he that's his specialty, for facial paralysis, and he got a hold of the show, and they got a hold of me, and he set up this wonderful team of doctors. Talk about angels that came into my life and helped fix. In other words, the paralysis is there, but they did some surgery to kind of make my face more symmetrical looking so that if you look at me, you go, oh, it doesn't look like anything happened to her, whereas a few years ago, it, it definitely did. Mm -hmm. So they've just been marvelous and wonderful people. Well, that's fantastic. You're, see, it's the, things are working out bit by bit. As long as that, if that bullet moves, are you in big trouble? Oh, it's not going to move. It, 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 they, cause when they went to look for it and they said, well, it's there, but as you know, scar tissue forms around foreign objects, and they, it would have been too much to try and go in and get it would have done more damage than to just leave it there knowing that scar tissue would form around it. Mm -hmm. So that, it's... It's not going. Uh, I'm assuming also that you, because of all these painkillers is how you ended up going into Betty Ford. Oh, that that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I was up to like 30 pills a day. Wow. And I was functioning at the time. Mm. I mean, I was a zombie, but I was functioning. And it became more that I was taking them to suppress my depression and my anger and all, and more so than, I mean, certainly there was pain involved, but 
not to that extent anymore. It, it, they, I became dependent on them, and I didn't want to be anymore. Was it a, a difficult uh, withdrawal physically and emotionally for you? Awful, 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 yeah. awful. Getting I, off of those I, kind of medications is the worst. Uh, yeah. They say that like codeine withdrawal. Awful, and I write about it in the book. Just the withdrawal, it, just the sick and and oh, the, my my blood pressure went down and sweats, night sweats, and throwing up and horrible. Mm. But you lived through that. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell that she's still alive, ladies and gentlemen, because this is live. But we're not doing this through a Ouija board. That's right. My kids always say that my theme song is "I'm Still Standing" by Elton John. <laughs> The name of the book is, of course, Getting It Through My Thick Skull. Who came up with that title? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, you did. You did. <laughs> well, it's, it's an old family joke. All of my life growing up, I, I grew up in the 60s, and I have a thick Irish skull. And my mother used to say to me all the time, Ah, oh, when are you going to get it through your thick head? Or when are you going to get it through your thick skull? She always started every conversation with those words when I wanted to do something that you know I couldn't do for the millionth time. So after I got shot and I'm laying in the hospital and I, I now it's been a couple of days and I'm awake and they tell me you've been shot in the head and I'm like, oh my God. I looked at my family and we have this gallows Irish sense of humor and that's when I took my mother's hand and I said, you see, Ma, this thick skull finally came in handy. <laughs> 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 and, and I made, you know, and I looked like hell. I mean, I realized. Oh, I remember what I you looked like, Mary. I was so concerned with them, like, they looked awful. They had just been through three or four days of this, what on earth, their daughter was almost murdered in front of the house, and we don't know who did this, that it was my way of saying, I'm going to be okay, like, to make them okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I know this is probably the one question no one has ever asked you. All right. Did you ever go back and finish painting the bench? <laughs> I know. As a matter of fact, God bless my neighbors, they did. Oh, there you are. I still have visions my, of that can of paint still sitting out there on Long Island. <laughs> my uh, neighbors were so wonderful. They rallied around us and protected us and took care of us, uh, fed us, uh, protected us, put a gate behind our house so we could go over to the beach club. Uh, and finished painting the bench for yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was good. Well, that was a happy ending, see? Yeah. And the kids are comfortable with the book, right? Uh, yes, it was my son, it's for them, and it was my son was the reason I wrote this. And when we talked about it, they said, you know, Paul, I think people need to know about this. And they gave me their blessings, and they're very proud of me. They've come to my book signings and i've introduced them and um they're they're very very proud of their their old mom well i gotta say i i went out i've, I've read the reviews of the book of course and uh, i'm always uh, i'm always a little nervous about reading reviews that aren't by professional reviewers just because i don't like reading my own <laughs> yeah but these are good, these are good reviews yeah well, uh, she had a few mixed as i do uh but the ones who praise it the most really get to the heart and soul of it, they were. One person mentioned that they were afraid it was going to be a little tabloidian, you know, right. a little exploitive, and they had their head totally turned around and admired you so much after reading this book. And that's well, thank uh, that you. means a lot. Uh, you know, it it was my one chance, and everybody's got their own uh, con conception of what what the story is. You've heard it a million times. You can look it up on the internet and get an idea. But it was my, like, I want to let people know this is what I've learned. Like, this is what it was before I got shot, a little bit before what it was like to be shot, what went on during that insane period. 
and then the struggles that I went through all through those years. I it was a lot of struggling, and, and there's one incident where I do I talk about I, I would stand in front of the medicine cabinet with all those pills, and I'd be like, if I just take them all, I can end all of this. And here uh. I survived something that was almost unsurvivable, and yet I got to a point, and it was like three years later where I was feeling that way, like this is just hell is never going to end. Well, you know what? Our time together has ended for today, but I recommend everyone run out immediately, either online or in person, and get Getting It Through My Thick Skull by Mary Jo Bonavuco. Lori, you want to say something before she goes? Mary, you're terrific. God bless oh, you. Beautiful cool. grace. Yeah, your uplifting you. personality is wonderful to hear. Please hang on the line. Don't hang up yet. Okay. Okay, okay hang on now. Uh, oh, okay, Barry Jones. Uh, Don Waldman, thanks again for a great show. Matt, thanks for producing another hour of brilliance. I'm the legendary Burl Bear. Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence. Next, live from the Lighten Up Lounge. I'm a man, candy good boy.